Good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out, I encourage you to open them up. We will be using them quite a bit this morning as we study through God's Word. I want to say as you're doing so that I'm very, very thankful to be here with you this morning. To have this opportunity to speak with you, an opportunity that God has afforded us to be able to be gathered together, to encourage one another, to lift one another up, and to consider one another. Uh, it, is, it is just a, a great honor that we can be here and worship our great and our Almighty God. I'd also like to take this moment to welcome some of the visitors that have already been mentioned. Uh, it's encouraging for you to be here with us. I'm encouraged by that because I, like you, am a visitor myself. And I'm, I'm very thankful that I have this opportunity to visit, but I'm also thankful for this congregation. I feel like I've grown to know them well over the years that, I, that they have been a, a support and a help to me. They're a congregation that loves the truth, a congregation that made serving God and pleasing God, their primary goal. And I know that as we go through this lesson this morning, as we spend time studying from His Word and the things that you have seen and, and hear done here, if any of that is something that seems new to you or something that you have a question about, I encourage you to come. You can ask me or you can talk to, to Josh or any one of the men here I'm confident would be able to give you uh, an answer from God's Word as, as to you, towards your question. This morning as we look to the Bible... I want you to go ahead and open them up to the Old Testament. We're going to be spending some time uh, specifically in the Old Testament. In fact, it's where a majority of our lesson will come from this morning. And we're going to be looking at a time of the descendants of Isaac. Uh, and when we think of the descendants of Isaac, I'm sure we, we typically think of that, that tribe, that nation of people that is, is so prevalent throughout the Old Testament and, and throughout the usage of the Bible, the Israelites. We hear much spoken about them, and we will be talking about them, but I also want to consider another a nation that comes through the lineage of Isaac. Uh, instead of coming through the lineage of Jacob, this one comes through Esau. And that is the, the, the Amalekites. Be those, uh, the, that nation of people we'll also be considering as we look at what the Bible has to say about these people. Uh, and, and these two people who are, as we've already mentioned, related by blood, they, uh, they had issues. Maybe, maybe that's a, a light way to put it. They had, they had several issues. And, and, the issues that they have and the things that they encountered with one another, they go on to serve a purpose for us, uh, especially in our lesson today. So turn me to the book of Exodus. That's where we'll be taking our message from. Exodus chapter 17. And we will read here about one of the earliest encounters between these two nations in verses 8 through 16. It says there, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. 
Now this, this short passage in Exodus 17 is a, there's a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot happening here. We have stuff of, um, about, about Moses and this thing with his hands holding above his head. And we have these two nations warring and fighting and, and a victory. And then even God sitting this, you know, promising this curse on a people that they won't be remembered. There's so much going on here. But one of the first things that really draws my attention whenever I read this is actually a question. The question is why? Why do we even have a fight going on between these two people, as we've already mentioned, that are related by blood? Why do we have the descendants of Esau attacking the descendants of Jacob? Now, if we think back to that life, we think, okay, well, maybe maybe the reason they're fighting is because of the bad blood Remember Esau and Jacob. Jacob was able to to take the birthright from Esau for for just the the price of of a stew, and and even deceived his father and giving him the 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 blessing by by tricking him into thinking that he was his older brother Esau, and and that certainly led to some contention between these two men. In fact, we see Jacob having to run away to to flee for his life, afraid his brother is going to kill him, but. Eventually, they come back together and we see that after time has passed that they seem to have forgiven one another. Jacob comes and bows before Esau and they seem to have made peace there. So why would the descendants of them now be fighting once again? Or maybe another reason we think why is we look at what just happened in the life of the Israelites. Certainly the Amalekites knew what these people were and where they came from. Isn't this the nation, uh, this tribe of people that were slaves to the Egyptians? And yet now they're out here in the wilderness away from the Egyptians and the Egyptians. They've been crushed in the Red Sea. Certainly, if we fast forward in their in their timeline to the time when they're crossing over the Jordan, it seems like everybody has heard what is going on with the Israelites. In fact, Rahab, the prostitute, someone you wouldn't expect to know hardly anything about God or His people, who says, I know that God fights for you all. And so people know who the Israelites are. And again, we just wonder why on earth is it the Amalekites, uh, why are they coming to, to pick this fight and to attack the Israelites? Well, maybe to understand it just a little bit more, let's turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, we get just a little bit more insight into this battle. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 25, look with me in verses 17 and 18, two small verses that speak about this. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Now, the, the descendants of Amalek became a very wicked nation, and we're a wicked nation at this point. And it's believed, like many of the other tribes of people, nations of people who lived in the Canaan area, they served other gods other than the one true God. And they served many. There, were, there was gods like uh, Asherah and, and, and the Baal. But one of the primary gods that was so detestable at this time was the god Moloch. And it was known, if we read the language in 1 Samuel 15, about King Agag, the Amalekite. We'll speak about him more in a moment. King Agag was known as making women childless. Now one of the things that these uh, Canaanites would do is they worshipped Molech whenever they were getting ready to go into a battle, whenever they, uh, they were... They were having a rough harvest, the rain wasn't falling, we have to make a sacrifice to our God, we have to appease the God, and so they would go to do that, and they wouldn't sacrifice goats or, or, or animals, they wouldn't sacrifice grain or, or a wine offering, they would sacrifice children. They would take their children and sacrifice them, murder them for this God, and we can look at that and think, well, that's, that's 
disgusting, but how much more detestable would this be in the eyes of God who, who those children belonged to, who had created them, and not only were they not accepting Him as God, but they were murdering the children to, to appease this, this idol that they had made. Now, at the time that the Israelites were attacked by Amalek, it's unknown whether they were already taking part in this type of worship. But what we just read in Deuteronomy, what we know for certain is that they had no fear of the Lord. They didn't respect God in any possible way. They didn't care that the Israelites were His chosen people. And they obviously didn't like the idea of the Israelites marching their way towards Canaan. So they attack. And I hope... That as we use the remainder of our time here, we can focus on what we learn from this battle, on what we learn from, from the, the, the fight that they had, and some points that I hope will help us today when we too are faced with struggles and trials, and even when we spiritually are attacked in the same ways that they were. But first, let's notice this. The Amalekites were to Israel what Satan and sin is to the Christian. We already mentioned that the Amalekites, they did not fear God. We read that in Deuteronomy. They weren't concerned with His law. They weren't concerned that they were uh, His people. And they weren't concerned with His will whatsoever. They were content to attack those who belonged to Him. They were content to discourage those who belonged to Him. And they were content to kill those who belonged to Him. And they were a problem. A problem that was going to have to be dealt with if they ever hoped to live one day in the promised land of Canaan. Now likewise, for us today, we enjoy an inheritance in heaven. But to be able to enjoy that inheritance, we must deal with a problem. A problem of sin. Now did you notice when we look back at the way that they were attacked? That they weren't attacked from the front. We didn't read that the people of Antioch sat up there on the hill and they, they monitored the Israelites and they said, we got to find, we got to find that tough guy. We gotta find that great big warrior champion. Maybe they were looking for Joshua or for Caleb. We gotta find that guy and we gotta go down there and we're gonna knock him out. Then everybody will know we're big and we're bad and they aren't gonna mess with us. That's not what they did. They said, we read in Deuteronomy, they prayed upon the weak. They attacked from the rear, those who were lingering behind. They were the ones that they were attacking. Those who were tired. Satan stands opposed to God and he doesn't care about God's law. We see how, how Satan is akin to the Amalekites in this way. He doesn't care about God's law. He doesn't care about God's chosen people. He doesn't like the idea of them going to heaven. So what does he do? He does like the Amalekites. He attacks. Now just for a moment, maybe to give us a little bit of a, a background here, let's consider how the, Amalek, or how the Israelites got to this place. They are now here in Rephidim. But back in chapter 3... And chapter 3 is where things begin to, to happen. That's when Moses, <clears throat> excuse me, Moses receives this message from God from the burning bush. This all starts with the word of God coming to him and informing, informing him, not only have I heard the cries of my people. The Israelites have been crying out with this new, <clears throat> this new Pharaoh came on the scene and he didn't remember Joseph and he didn't remember the things of, of this people and he had made their work hard and they, <clears throat> God says, I've heard the cries of your people. But not only have I heard them, I have seen their treatment by the Egyptians. And I'm going to take this people, I'm going to take them out of this land to a new land. A place where there will be plenty of room for everyone. A place where there will be lands flowing with milk and with honey. And this is a great place that I'm taking them to. They needed to understand this. There will be a place where there will be no more slavery. There will be no more starving. There will be no more being an outcast. He was delivering them from the Egyptians. And he did this through these ten plagues that we might remember. And then they finally crushed the Egyptian army as we talked about in the Red Sea. But then after that, 
He takes them out and He turns bitter water sweet so that they can drink it. And He leads them to camp amongst springs and amongst uh, palm trees. But then along the way, things become difficult. In chapter 16, we read that they begin to complain because they, they had run out of food. And they begin saying there was more food for us back in slavery. They could eat all they wanted to when they were in slavery. They, they, they had food to eat, but they, they were not their own people. They were not their own nation. And, and God at this time provides them manna. And He provides them quail. And He does so that they might know who brought them out of Egypt. They were going to Moses and they were saying, look at this Moses. Well, you brought us out here and we're going to die. And God was saying, no, I brought you out of there. I'm the one that rescued you from Egypt and I can take care of you. Trust in me. And so then He brings them along a little bit further to Rephidim. And what do we find again? We find that they're complaining once more again, crying out, why have you taken us out of Egypt? Why did you bring us out here to die? And once again, they are provided for by God. But something's beginning to to become obvious about this people by the time we get to chapter 16. That is, they are a people who are growing more and more discontent. They are looking back to Egypt. They are looking back to slavery, back, back to which they have been brought out of. And it was because of the circumstances that they were currently in. And that's the climate in which the Amalekites attacked them. But make no mistake, this is actually the climate in which they were truly attacked by Satan. He wanted their focus on their current circumstances. He wanted them looking at the situation they were in. He wanted them to look back to where they had come from and not to look where they were headed, not to look who was at who was leading them, God. And likewise today. Satan wants to discourage us from continuing on. He wants to make us turn back to Egypt, to look back to the slavery of sin, to what we have left behind. He wants to spiritually kill us. And you can bet that's exactly what can happen if we allow him to defeat us. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. What sin earns you is death. But, like the Israelites, the Lord is fighting on our side. What that means is we can be victorious and we can defeat Satan, but we must choose to fight the battle. The Israelites, they couldn't, they couldn't just run away from this attack. They were being attacked from behind and, and they, they couldn't just say, you know what, we're just, we're just going to give up. We're just going to maybe just keep walking on and we're just going to pretend that they're not there because eventually the Amalekites were just going to continue and continue until there was nobody left. They had to make a choice. We are going to have to turn and we are going to have to fight this. And every day we are faced with Satan's attacks. Every day we must have, uh, we have a choice placed before us. And we must stand ready to say, today I am going to stand with the Lord. Today I am going to fight back. But we do well to remember the means in which the Israelites won this battle. It wasn't based upon their, their great numbers. It wasn't based upon their, their uh, ability and their skills. In fact, the means to their victory was most peculiar indeed. Again, we might say today, the battle belongs to the Lord. We have a song that we sing about that oftentimes. So imagine today. Imagine today there, there is a battle raging. We'll, we'll consider this. We, uh, the brother that led the prayers spoke about those who are overseas serving. Uh, at Lake Street, we have a member who, who have, oftentimes is stationed overseas. In fact, stationed overseas right now. And we can imagine that there are, there are skirmishes, there are battles that go on uh, over there. So we imagine a battle raging today and maybe the commander looks around and he sees that, that there's heavily, heavy conv, uh, casualties being taken upon his side. Maybe there's those who have been injured, those who maybe even lost their life. And he gathers all his troops together and he tells them, say, listen guys, I know it looks bad, but relax. We got this because I'm going to go up on that hill right there and I'm going to take my M4 and I'm going to hold it above my head. 
And as long as that M4 is held above my head, we are going to be okay. We're going to win. Now, yeah, if it drops down a little bit, they're, they're going to maybe start coming back. But as long as that M4 is above my head, and you know what's going to happen? If his troops don't just go AWOL right then and there and say, no, what? I'm, no, I'm done. I'm out. They're going to look for someone else to lead them. They're going to say, that doesn't make any sense. And sometimes I think we make the mistake of, of forgetting that the people we read about in the Bible are just that. There are people. There are people like us. They had weaknesses and they had fears. And I imagine as Moses is saying these things to them, there's probably more than one or two of them that's going, you know what? Moses has lost his mind. This makes no sense. That's not a battle strategy. How about Moses instead? We go up here and we find a spot where some of us can hide and wait. And when they come up, we'll, we'll come down and we'll surprise them. That's, that's a strategy. Or we'll turn really fast and we'll just all charge them. And we'll be really, really violent. Those are strategies. But this, holding a rod above your head, that makes no sense in a physical battle. But again, this battle, or maybe better put, the victory here was one that belonged to the Lord. And so how many times then do we look at the battles that we are called to face each and every day? And we start to look at, at, at the, the battle and go, alright, this is what makes sense to me. This is what I think needs to be done. Or maybe better, you know, more accurately, we look to what God's Word says and go, you know what, I don't think that will work. I don't think that will work in this circumstance. I don't think that the person will respond if I do that. Or I don't, I don't think that this will happen if I do this. And when we look at these things, they don't make any sense. But we need to look at our battles. And we need to realize these are battles we are forced, we are called to face. We need to remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the world is turning to apostasy. If, if you're here this morning and you think, what does that word mean, apostasy? It simply means a, de- a deviation from the truth. And the world is filled with people who want to love God. They look at what the Bible says about God and they say, He's, He is a magnificent fellow and I want to serve Him. And so they go and they find someone who's going to tell them how to do that. And they tell them what they think. How they should serve Him. And that's what they do. They go to follow Him. And brothers and sisters, that's a battle we are called to face. And more and more often we see brethren who have differing views on on things. And sometimes those things are based off really important scriptural matters that we have to discuss and we have to to debate and we have to come to a, a, a right understanding of. But oftentimes those things are opinions. Those things are opinions that aren't worth the, the effort that sometimes gets put into them in which they, brother, will come together and butt heads and friction is, and division occurs and Satan just loves to try his best to tear a church apart, not from the outside, but from the inside. We have to see that as a battle that we are called to face. We talked about in the class this morning the, the, the idea of raising children. And I'm going to tell you, families, today, the family is under attack. Roles are mixed up. Uh, people completely turning around what God has set in order. The husband leading the family as the head and as the, the spiritual leader. The wife submitting to the husband out of love for God. Out of love for who God is. She submits herself to her husband and the children. Obeying their parents. Daily, we are reminded uh, on things such as television, the husband, he, he is a, a bumbling fool. He does his best to hold down a job, and, and while he likes to think, he makes the decisions. We all know who calls the shots. It's the wife who, who manipulates him and uses all sorts of different tactics to make the decisions and even make him think that he's the one making those decisions. And children. Children, they are, they are taught that, uh, that mom and dad doesn't know best. We talked about that specifically in class. They are taught that if you get away with it, you didn't do anything wrong if you don't get caught. Our entertainment, our society, even our own government 
has launched an all-out attack on the family. And Satan, again, has been very effective in this, but we must remember, that is a battle we are called to face. And we can be victorious. We can show others how to worship God properly. How to worship Him in a way that is pleasing to Him in spirit and in truth. We can discuss our differences with our brethren without tearing the whole congregation apart. And we can make our families what God expects them to be not by our own righteousness, not by saying, look at what we're doing, but by, by, by God's righteousness, by reading His Word and following what He says. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle requires our efforts, but the victory is His that He gives. And He does this in several ways. Notice one way that He helped the Israelites uh, was, was by providing help for Moses. As that battle raged on and Moses' arms were, were above his head and they start to get tired. You know, he's been holding that staff of the Lord up for quite some time now. I imagine and I'm getting, I don't even want to hold my arms up any longer. He's got a rod in his hand and he starts to, to lower that rod down. I suppose that is taxing on the muscles. And so here comes Aaron and her to help. And they provide support given to him. Something to rest upon. some uh, A rock to sit on. And we hold it, they hold his hands up during the fight. But think of how the battle might have ended differently had, had they not done that. When Moses' arms grew tired and began to drop, and then the Amalekites began to gain ground, what if, like, like so many today might say, what if they had looked at him and said, that's, that's not a very important job. Holding up the arms of some man on top of a hill? So anybody here can hold up his arms. The kids can go up there and hold up his arms. I think the best place for me is maybe down here in the fight. Look at Joshua surrounded by Amalekites fighting and, and people dying. I need to be down there with Joshua. Because that is important work. This up here is not important. Or how many might criticize Moses? Might look at him and say, come on Moses, you, you got one job. We're fighting the Amalekites. We're swinging swords. All you got to do is hold up a stick. And you can't even hold the stick up? You see, the world needs more errands and more hers. Too often time we want to be Moses or we want to be Joshua. And think of the temptation that might have been there for Aaron. As he looks at this and thinks, man, if Moses... If, if he lets his arms down, if he doesn't do what, what, you know, what he said is what we need to win, and, and the Amalekites, they come in and they just they start wiping us out and we, we suffer heavy casualties, how's God going to feel about that? God may be going to be mad at Moses here. Maybe he's going to take Moses out. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty important guy. Maybe God will put me in Moses' place. No, they saw where they were needed. They saw what needed to be done and they went to work. And yes, there were good opportunities. No doubt there were good opportunities for them elsewhere. But right then and right there, these two men saw where they were needed the most. And we need to be more like these men. We need to see something that is needed and we need to do it. And this can come in all sorts of forms. We come in, maybe we come in for services and, and we notice that the song leader, maybe he's running late, maybe they're absent. I imagine that's that's probably an even bigger deal here with the the songs on the on the overhead as opposed to to where where we are at Lake Street where we don't use that and and I know you have somebody has to load that on there somebody has to prepare that so what if you get here and the and the song leader is absent and we might think to ourselves why is he late what, what doesn't he know how much how much better our worship can be when we're not running around and, and trying to drag people out of positions to, to, to fill in? Doesn't he know how much more difficult this makes our services whenever he doesn't get here on time? And, and all of that might be true. All of that might be very true. But what we should do is be like Aaron and be like her and say, you know what, I'm here. And I can do that and I can volunteer. I can fill in. And, and if he doesn't make it, I will do it. And if he does make it or if he gets here late, I'm going to go up to him and I'm not just going to, not just going to let him have it. 
I'm going to go up to him and I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to find out what's going on. Maybe there's a need that needs to be met that I can help with. I'm going to lift him up in some way. Or maybe we look around and see other needs. We see a widow that needs to be visited and say, somebody somebody should be going and taking and seeing how she's doing or seeing how that person is doing and, and what I can do, to what they can be done to help them or someone who's sick and think a card needs to be sent to them. Or maybe you have visitors that have been here for a while and you think, man, it sure would be if, if somebody would maybe take them out for lunch or, or invite them over to their house, maybe have a start, start of a Bible study with them. Somebody needs to be doing these things. We need to have the attitude of Aaron and her and say, I can do these things. In some way, I can find a need. <coughs> excuse me. I can find a need and I can help. But all too often in, in the world that we live in today, more time is spent tearing down instead of building up. I don't agree with, with whoever the preacher was. I, I hope that's not the, the, the case today. But I don't agree with who the preacher was. So I'm going to sit back there in the back of the room. I'm going to wait for them to get to the door. And I'm, I'm just going to let them have it. And if anybody's waiting for me in the back of the hall at the, at the end of the sermon, they got their arms crossed and they're tapping their foot, I'm probably going to stay in here just for a little bit and let you go on. But maybe sometimes we get out in the car. And say, no, I'm not, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't like what, that, what the preacher had to say. I'm just going to blast the windshield as I drive home. I'm going to be angry. You know, maybe we, uh, we, we, we look at the way somebody maybe led a prayer or they're in the song service or presided over the Lord's table. We look at something and we say, I didn't like that or it offended me and I just make it in my mind that it must be wrong. Or maybe it just flat out was wrong. Maybe the preacher got up there and just said something that was completely inaccurate. Do we decide at that moment that that person is just our enemy? That that person is needed for us to attack? Is that what Aaron and her did when they saw Moses growing weak and his arms were going down? They said, get up there and take a stick and we're just going to beat him until he gets those arms back up? Look over in Acts chapter 18 for a moment with me. In Acts chapter 18, we get an example of this. Of a time when somebody was doing something and absolutely it was wrong. It was, there was error found in it. Acts chapter 18 and verse 24. We read about... Aquila and Priscilla, when they heard Apollos teaching. In verse 24, it says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now what did they do when Aquila and Priscilla heard him preaching? What did they do? When we, when we read on in verse 26, we see that he was speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, they didn't go home and say, you know what, that was, that was a pretty good lesson. But man, he just missed, messed it all up right there at the end. They didn't go home and say, it sure is a pity that, that he doesn't understand that any better. I think we're just going to have to find us a new synagogue. We're going to go somewhere else. We're not going to be a part of that anymore. No, they pulled him aside. They said, let me, let me help you understand just something about this that maybe you don't quite understand. They lifted up his arms. And you know what the result of that was? If you read on verses 27 28, Apollos, after they went on and taught him, he went on and he taught all over Greece, all over Achaia, that, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was, he was a prominent figure in spreading the gospel to others. It becomes really not a, not a great big mystery then. It's no wonder why we have so many people who are afraid or hesitant to step up and to lead in the church. Because we need to spend a whole lot less time tearing one another down and focus a whole lot more energy on lifting one another up. Lifting up each other's arms. We need to encourage leaders. You know someone who would be a, a, a great job leading, maybe maybe shepherding or, or and just setting a good example. We need to encourage them to do that. 
to lead. And we need to not make their life more difficult than it already is. Satan does an amazing job. He does an amazing job opposing the children of God. So we don't need to give him a helping hand in that. There's also something else we need to remember. Not only did God provide help for Moses, but Moses accepted the help. He accepted the help of Aaron and of her. Now you think about what Moses might have, you know, he could have said when they came up and said, Moses, your arms are looking tired. That staff's starting to drop down. You, you want some help? He might have said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I, I've got this. I appreciate your concern, but I know I'm doing all right. He might have got, might have had a little bit of a big head and said, you know what? Hey, you forget who I am. I'm Moses. God spoke to me in the burning bush. You remember that, Aaron? God is the one that picked me. I'm the one that dipped my staff into the Red Sea. I'm the one that, that struck the rock. Moses, or I'm Moses. But instead, no, he accepted the help. He accepted what his brethren and, and his friends were offering. And likewise today, God has given us a family in the church for a reason. And when our brothers reach out to help us, we need to accept it. We need to give them the opportunity to serve in that way and to help in that way. And in our battles, sometimes you know, maybe we feel like we're, we're fighting these battles alone. But other times we have brethren come to our aid and they say something like, maybe they say, let me, let me take something off your plate. Let me, let me help you out a little bit. you got so much going on that you're juggling. Let me, give me one of those tasks. Maybe they say, can I, can I pray for something? Are you, is there something you're struggling with? Something that I can pray for to help you? And this isn't the time to go, you know what, no, no, I'm good. This isn't the time to put on the strong face and say, I, I've got everything under control. This is a great time to accept help. Because not only, not only do we confess our, our sins and our, our shortcomings and confess our needs to our brethren, will they take those things and petition them to, to our great and holy God who is able to forgive us, who is able to provide help even more than we can comprehend? But our brothers and sisters' relationships with us, they grow. They are strengthened. We're more likely to assist and to help one another because Satan is going to continue to attack. But we're more apt, we're more prepared to respond. We need to realize that sometimes, yes, we're called to go into battle. Sometimes we're called to support. And sometimes we're the ones that need the support. I want to point out one last thing. One last thing, and I will conclude the lessons and this is, what was the consequences of this battle? What was on the line? Because obviously, we know it was God's desire for the children of Israel to go to Canaan, to, to go into the promised land. And if, if they lay down here, that's not going to happen. If they just give up, that, that they're not going to have that inheritance in the promised land. So certainly that's on the line. But specifically, why did it seem that God wanted to wipe out the Amalekites? Why did He want them completely erased from memory? He says, I will blot them out from underneath heaven. That's a question that many have asked today. They claim, well, how could God possibly be a good, moral, loving God? And yet, look, how many times in the Old Testament He's going to wipe out all of His his people, man, woman, and child? Well, we've already noticed some things about the Amalekites. They were were not a God-fearing people. But you know, many people at that time, many other nations at that time, they were similar as them. And God didn't choose to completely wipe them off the face of the earth. You think of the, the Egyptians. They, they weren't necessarily a God-fearing people. They, they finally relinquished control over the, the, uh, the Israelites after that tenth plague, after God came in and, and killed the firstborn. But it wasn't very long where they were right back after Him. We want them back. And God didn't just completely wipe them off the map. And in fact, the, Am- the, the, Israel- 
The Egyptians. There we go. The Egyptians become a problem for the Israelites later on in their life. Whenever they are, uh, whenever they are facing uh, trouble from the outside, when people are pressing in on their kingdom, instead of looking to God, who they look, they still look back to Egypt. They say, "Man, Egyptians. They got strong horses. They got strong chariots. Let's look at them." So they're going to be. A, there are people that didn't fear God, and there are people that were going to be a problem for for the Israelites. But God didn't, didn't wipe them out. Well, when we begin to question this and reason about this, we need to remember for certain one thing, and that is God's ways are, are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9 tells us that. Tells us that His thoughts uh, are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're on a different level. They are much higher than us. And so I don't ever want to suggest that I, I can come close to being able to sit down on the same level as God and argue His understanding. That, that is not the case. But I do want to suggest that we see some things in, in history, as we move forward, we see some things happening that are quite interesting. The first is in 1 Samuel 15. Saul is sent to wipe out the Amorites. You might remember that. Saul is sent to his task to go and to, to wipe them out specifically for what they did here in Egypt, uh, on their way out of Egypt, for, for the attack that they uh, placed on the, on the Israelites. And if you also remember, he fails to do that. Samuel gets there and Saul says... Samuel, brother, it's all done. I've wiped them all out. I, I, I mopped the floor with them. He says, well, I, I, Saul, I hear, I hear animals. You're supposed to kill all the animals too. And, and look, I see people. I see, I see the king. I see the king. He's still alive. What do you mean you, you did it? Saul says, well, uh, that's, that was the people. The people wanted to do that. And we're we're going to give these things to God. This is going to be a great day. But it wasn't a great day. In fact, Saul gets, gets rejected as God at this time. And then later David is tasked with killing them and he, he kills all of them, save a few, a few hundred young men that were able to escape. But by the time, as we continue to fast forward, by the time that the Jews are in captivity, the Amalekites are, are really no longer on the scene. They're not a great people anymore. There's just a sparse few remaining and those few that remain are, are in subjection to other nations. And that brings us to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Here in Esther chapter 3, I, I think we see something very interesting about, about the Amalekites and about the relationship that they, that they eventually would play on the Israelites. And verse 1 says, After these things, King Ahasuerus, or maybe your, your translation is King Xerxes, he promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gates said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commands? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay, pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. We're gonna, as we read on, Haman concocts a plan not just to, to, to kill Mordecai. He concocts a plan just to completely wipe out all of these people, all of the Jews, because Haman hated the Jews. But did you notice who Haman was? Described him back there in verse 1, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. That's right, he was an Agagite. He was a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite, who Saul failed to kill. And I hope this goes to show us one last and very important note. Sin, when left alone, it doesn't go away. In fact, it oftentimes gets worse. 
These Amalekites who had threatened to destroy the Israelites at one time, and Saul was said, you go in there and you're going to wipe them out, and he didn't do it. And eventually we come to the time of Esther, and there was just one or two, just a few of them left, but one of them was threatening to do it again. Completely wipe out God's chosen people, the lineage in which the Christ was supposed to come. Likewise, sin works in much the same manner. A lie, something that seems so small, that's one of those, that's one of those little sins, right? No, a lie that seems so small and insignificant, it illustrates this maybe better than any other sin, because something starts out so small, but unless we repent of it, we have to stack one on top of another on top of another, and they grow and continue to cover us with sin until in the same way, as they multiply and our hard hearts begin our hearts begin to harden, we eventually give birth to, to sin and to death. It will kill us. And God's desire for us, the same as his desire was for the children of Israel, is you don't give it the chance. Amalekites shouldn't have had the chance to kill the to wipe out the Israelites in, in, in the book of Esther. We don't need to give sin the chance to kill us, to, to spiritually put us to death. In Colossians chapter 3, we're told, put the old man to death. And we can't do that in the way Saul did. We can't pick which parts that we're going to keep and which parts we're going to get rid of. Maybe we look and say, well, you know what? I really, really, that, that part means a whole lot to me. I really like that particular sin or this or that. But no, God wants us to completely remove it from eradicate it, blot it out, and to stand at the ready every day to fight Satan's efforts to drag that old man back to us. So what does all this mean to me? What lessons can I learn from this battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites? Number one, I learned the way Satan often attacks. Satan attacks in an unprovoked manner. He attacks in a cowardly way. He preys upon the weak. And what I learned from that is there are certain things that I may still be on guard about, but I don't, I'm not too concerned that Satan's going to try to put those things in front of me. Alcohol is not something I've ever really, really struggled with. I'm still going to, going to guard myself against drunkenness, don't want to have anything to do with that, and won't have a alcohol even cross my lips to protect myself from that. But I'm not too worried about Satan filling my life with alcohol. There are other places, there are plenty of places where I have weaknesses that I have to be on guard, I have to protect myself, and those are the ways and areas in which Satan loves to attack. But the second thing I learned from this is that God provides a way to defeat Satan, to defeat him. And he does so by raising up his people. Just as he raised, had the arms of Moses raised up, he raises us up in baptism. As we go into baptism and that old man is put to death, we are raised up to a newness of life. A life where we are able to enjoy the power and the aid of God. Especially through things such as prayer. Our prayers are raised up to our Heavenly Father. But during this battle, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you there will come a time when we will grow tired. Just like Moses grew tired. But we must remember the battle belongs to the Lord. And He is there to help us. And He has given us support in the church and in our, our, our family of the church. And lastly, God wants us to eradicate sin from our lives. Not just, to, not just to cover it up a little bit here or there. To completely eradicate it. To put it away. And God's ways are higher than our ways. And I, I'm not going to even try to fully understand but I am going to fully trust God's ways. And like Saul, we can't fail to completely remove sin. The Amalekites were to Israel what, the Christ, what sin is to the Christian. A constant threat and a constant problem. But God's desire then would be the same for us today. To completely blot out all memory. They weren't to forget the atrocities that have been committed against 
God. They remembered what the Amalekites had done. And likewise, we don't, we don't forget what we have done. We don't forget the, 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 the atrocities that we have committed. But we no longer remember them due to the destruction and the defeat of sin. Something that only comes and is only possible through the power of God. This morning, if that be your desire, to be victorious over sin, then I would hope you would consider what is learned here from the Amalekites. If you have not yet become a child of God, if you have not yet turned away from sin, if you have not turned to face God as your, as your, as your King, confess that Jesus is the living Son of God, if you haven't made yourself fully submitted to Him in baptism, I would suggest this morning, you are not winning this fight. Moses' arms are down right now. Your arms are down right now. But all that can be changed. All that can be changed. You can choose to start your walk with Jesus today. And you have brothers and sisters here who would love to help you as you hold your arms up. And you can do that right now. But if you have, uh, if you've already done that, and along the way, Satan, he continues to press the attack. He continues to, to try and, and to bring you back to his kingdom. He wants his kingdom as full as it can possibly be. And he, as much as he hates the idea of, of someone from his kingdom going into the kingdom of God, he hates even more the idea that he can't bring them back. And so he tries and tries. And know that your sins, if he has, if he has gotten you to fall, your sins aren't going away on their own. But just as he helped the Israelites, so will God help you. If you desire the, the, the help of God, if you desire the prayers of the saints here on your behalf, if you desire them to hold you accountable for the life that you live and to help you even to lift you up when you're weak, then I will encourage you, this morning, make it be known. Whatever way that we can assist, please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.